What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Brad Garlinghouse is the CEO of Ripple. In this conversation, we discuss what Ripple does, how XRP is related, the current progress to date, and then Brad answers a number of hard questions that were crowdsourced from Twitter. This conversation has been highly anticipated, so I want to make a few things clear up front. Brad participated in this podcast episode without he or his team reviewing my questions beforehand. There was no payment of any kind that exchanged hands, and the episode has not been edited in any material way other than the removal of prolonged silences or filler words like uh or um. When I agreed to record this episode, I figured that both supporters and detractors of Ripple or XRP would be unhappy with the final product. That is okay with me. I spent quite a bit of time preparing for this interview, including talking to people from both sides, along with crowdsourcing a lot of questions that people wanted answered. I hope you listen to this episode with an open mind and walk away thinking the conversation was fair and balanced. Either way, I hope you enjoy it. Skirt, skirt! Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, motherfucking mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you, always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry, your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide. And then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just your update in your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. As many of you know, crypto investors store their digital assets on exchanges or in cold storage for long-term safekeeping. However, this strategy doesn't help them grow their investment holdings or build overall wealth. With the new BlockFi interest account, users can now securely store their Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. 6% is an absurdly high rate. It's the best rate in the industry. I highly suggest you go check out BlockFi.com POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com POMP to sign up and start earning crypto today. If you follow Bitcoin and crypto, you've probably heard of eToro. They're the world's number one social trading platform, and I love it. They've got more than 10 million other traders that love it too. And guess what? They just launched in the United States. eToro offers access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others. With the smartest trading tools and the ability to connect with the best traders around the world, there's no better place to build your perfect portfolio. If you're new to Bitcoin and crypto, you can test the waters with their $100,000 virtual trading feature. But if you're more experienced, you can create custom technical charts and use eToro's social feeds to inform your trading decisions. They've got transparent fees, and so you never miss out. They also have an easy-to-use application available on iPhone, Android, or any web browser. You can get started today in just a few clicks at eToro.com. 
Again, that's eToro.com. Get VIP access to Bitcoin and crypto markets today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. Uh, Super excited about this episode. I think we broke the internet before you even got here. (laughs) Um, I've got uh, Brad um, here who we are going to try to get through a whole bunch of information. um, And uh, hopefully when people leave here, they will understand his perspective on uh, how Ripple XRP works, uh, kind of let him um, describe where they are from a progress standpoint, uh, answer all of the haters and the, uh, the, the detractors online and the lovers and, and the lovers there's well there's we'll get to the xrp army who uh as i uh in preparation was thinking you must be the commander of the xrp army <laughs> uh, i'm not sure well i definitely don't consider myself the commander of the xrp <laughs> army but uh, i'm not sure there's a few people who maybe probably contend for that position i'm not one of them <laughs> all right so let's start uh from the beginning, you actually have a life before Ripple, uh, which some people may not realize. Um, and you've been in the technology sector for a really long time. Uh, Yahoo, AOL, etc. No experience. Experienced. <laughs> One of my partners is mid fifties, and I, when we go through everything, I always say, hey, "This is our experienced partner." <laughs> uh, let's talk about AOL and Yahoo. Um, kind of give us a quick overview. What did you do at each one, and, and we talk some of that experience. I'll start with Yahoo just because I think for me that was uh, a really formative experience in uh-huh. lots and lots of ways. Uh, I joined in early 2003 and was there till uh, I think the beginning of 2008 or nine. I can't remember which anyway. And uh, I, it was a great experience partly because that was you, know, you kind of joined when you joined in early 2003. That was kind of a dark period for a lot of internet companies, and certainly I would put Yahoo on that list and just both measured by stock price, but also just engagement. And then, you know, new leadership was coming in and, you know, we went through a, a, a kind of a golden time at Yahoo where uh, a lot of growth and it's hard for, I think, today's younger generation to realize. I mean, Yahoo was Google of 2003, right? For sure. And uh, that was an awesome experience. Had some great mentors professionally, ran a whole bunch of things at Yahoo, ranging from the homepage to Yahoo Mail to Flickr and a handful of other things. Uh, and it, you know, just learned a lot as a leader and manager. One of the highlight slash interesting experiences there was uh, I ended up becoming a little bit infamous for something called the Peanut Butter Manifesto. What is that? The Peanut Butter Manifesto was a document I wrote. It was an internal document that I wrote. It did leak out after about 10 weeks. But uh, the articulation was basically like, Yahoo had a problem of spreading itself too thin. And I think this is true not just at Yahoo, but many companies suffer from the almost an identity crisis of who are we, what are we trying to be? And if you try to be all things to all people, you're not going to be anything to anybody. And I think Yahoo is struggling to like, hey, are we going to be a search company? Are we going to be an email company? Are we going to be a content company in news and sports and fantasy? And there's some interesting manifestations of this, but the, the internal characterization we talked about excuse me, internal characterization as we talked about the budgeting process and a senior person referred to that as well. We spread it around like peanut butter. <laughs> and to me, it was this like cringeworthy moment where I'm like, that is exactly the problem. 
uh, you know, if you want to be great at something, let's decide to be great at that and then overinvest in that and, and potentially at the expense of other things that maybe we have to divest or exit or whatever. But as the internet grew holistically, you had specialization and expertise. And, you know, if we were going to compete with Google in search, which I know people probably hear that and think, how is that even possible? Mm-hmm. In 2003, that was really possible. Mm-hmm. 2004. The, the homepage, I, if I remember correctly, at Yahoo was like one of the most visited, if not the most visited web page in the On world, the internet. right? Yeah. yeah. For a period of time, I don't, yeah. I mean, it was when I was managing it and it was certainly a, a, a high point of kind of, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about programming and a lot of interesting stories uh, about kind of, you know, things that transpired in those eras. But uh, yeah, it was a, a different time than it is for Yahoo today. For sure. And so you go from uh, Yahoo AOL uh, timeframe to uh, you then become the CEO of a technology startup. Um, and when I was uh, doing a bunch of prep work, uh, it was a file, file sharing startup, right? right? And, and so um, I'm assuming that that kind of forays into some of the stuff you're doing now, but maybe just tell us a little bit about what you guys were doing there and, and kind of um, you know what drew you from uh, the larger kind of tech corporations to something that was a little bit smaller and fast growing. Well, I, I've always kind of viewed myself more as a startup entrepreneurial guy. Before Yahoo, I had been the CEO of a small voice over IP company, kind of early days of VoIP. This is pre, pre-Skype. Uh, and so I, I knew that going from Yahoo to an early stage company was probably in the cards. Uh, you know, anytime I'm thinking about a career shift and my counsel to anybody would be think about long-term trends. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that was pretty maybe overly obvious in 20, I think it was 2011 when I was joining the company at the time, it's called You Send It. We rebranded to Hightail, but cloud-based file management, you know, again, now it's like, okay, everybody's using that all the time. That was actually kind of new in 2011. And You Send It had a pretty extensive user base. And the idea was, you know, and it was a bit of a turnaround because You Send It had kind of reached its kind of high point, if you will. And Mm -hmm. so how can we offer additional services, expand that? And I think you know things went reasonably okay there. We continue to grow it. Uh, the challenge is when you've got you know the Microsofts of the world and Googles of the world entering the space with kind of either a loss leader or for free, and certainly having Dropbox and Box as competitors, it was a really tough slog. Uh, and ultimately, we had an opportunity to sell the company. Uh, it did. It did end up selling to a company called OpenText. Uh, but I exited and you know decided to take some time off and look at what's next. Got it. Um, and so then you pop up again in the crypto world, right? Kind of after that time off. Um, let's start with kind of what's the first time you remember hearing about crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin, some other, you know, application of technology? Like, do you remember what that was and kind of what caught yeah. your attention? There's a, a conference that's kind of under the radar that uh, generally Orrin Hoffman and Peter Thiel organize each year called Dialogue. Dialogue. And uh, I attended, I've attended Dialogue a bunch of times, but uh, in 2012, I attended Dialogue with a number of friends, uh, and there was a session on Bitcoin. And on the flight home, sitting with some of these guys who often are referred to, you know, some of these guys are patient zero for many of Silicon Valley's Bitcoin uh, energy. And by the time we landed, I was like, okay, 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 I'll buy some Bitcoin. (laughs) Uh, What what year is this? 2012. 2012. Okay. So real, real early and kind of that nucleus of people who now most people know are, uh, are excited about it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is with Wences Casares, Mickey Malka, a good friend of mine, Dave Goldberg. He passed away, but you know, I've remained friends with those guys. I, the, the thing that I probably was unconvinced of in that era was what's the long-term opportunity of Bitcoin in a world where it's fighting against governments and fighting against banks and fighting against the institution, the man. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that's part of the genesis of Bitcoin, but I was always kind of 
I, you know, I often wonder, okay, if you took a slightly different strategy with these things, would you reach broader adoption? Would you impact more people more quickly? Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, I had not heard of Ripple, I got a recruiting call and, you know, we kind of got one, really? one thing led to another. So, so basically, uh, your kind of first foray was Bitcoin and, and more of what I'll call like the, the crypto ethos, if you will. Uh, and then inbound recruiting call ended up kicking off the process for Ripple. Yeah. It's kind of a color- amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a colorful story, and you know, so you, you'll maybe find it interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I had left Hightail. I had time on my hands, and so I decided uh, I'd be an Uber driver. I thought <laughs> that would be fun. Uh, so I drove an Uber for about a month, and one day a recruiter who I happened to know not super well but knew him. Uh, I remember partly because he kept trying to call me, and I kept hitting ignore because I had a passenger in the car. Anyway, I finally spoke to him, and he says, uh, you know have you heard of ripple and i lied and i said yes but tell me what it does again anyway so he describes what ripple is trying to do in the kind of internet of value Mm -hmm. and payments and the honest reaction i said look super interesting i'm not your guy i'll give you some names from paypal or visa Mm -hmm. you know my sense is that's kind of more up the alley of what you're looking for and in what he said which i think is somewhat true is that chris larson is one of the co-founders of ripple he's like no he's really looking for someone if you want to change an industry it's easier to do it a little bit from the outside perspective. And then if you hire someone from the industry, it's harder to achieve that same outcome. From the time that you got the call till the day you quit driving an Uber, how, how long was that? Well, I, I knew that wasn't that long because I didn't drive Uber very long. <laughs> that was a one month project. But I mean, that was a fun experience and a whole different for, for a different interview, for a different day. San Francisco is probably one of the only, you know, Bay Area, San Francisco is probably one of the only areas where uh, the people who are driving for Uber could have previously had some crazy other life and then yeah. in the future could next day be running a, a technology company. Yeah, there are a couple funny moments. I mean, so one, I, this is 2014 and uh, I, was, I was an early Tesla driver and so I was picking people up in my Tesla as an Uber X. And a lot of people at that time, particularly, had never been in a Tesla. So you'd pick people up and there'd be this kind of, oh, sh- you know, holy, sh- wait a minute. And anyway, a couple people did figure out who I was and they would tweet about it after the fact. But uh, you know, it was rather amusing. That's awesome. Um, all right. So let's dive into uh, Ripple first. Um, you joined in 2015 as a CEO? As COO. COO. Yeah. Okay. Um, what drew you to Ripple eventually? Kind of what, what was the, the lore, if you will, as to why to join this one company out of all the companies in the Bay Area? Well, it's, it's a good question. I interviewed with a bunch of different companies at the time. And I think, you know, for me, given where I was in my career, I was less interested in kind of how do I take a, a base hit or a, a double. It's kind of like, look, I, I, if you want to do something, I would really have an opportunity to, borrowing a Steve Jobsism, mm-hmm. put a dent in the universe. And there's a whole lot of things uh, in the kind of whatever web 2.0 web 3.0 whatever we're in where i look at the thing and i'm like wait this isn't that i mean it's kind of like oh could you as a capitalist make money sure but you know a better marketplace for dog walkers i I, it doesn't speak to me like Mm -hmm. it doesn't speak to me as like you're changing and impacting the world in a positive way and i'm not taking anything away from those that have a more efficient dog walking experience Mm -hmm. the Uh, dogs are happier the dogs are happier and by the way the dog walkers you know, there's Make some, more money. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not. I, I, I know. I'm not trying to be a hater to, towards that. But when I look, Brad at, Garlinghouse is a dog walk <laughs> hater. There was a rumor at Ripple for a while that I hated dogs, and we you know I was allowed to have dogs at work, and it's not. <laughs> that wasn't true either. But anyway, uh, so I, as I was looking, you know, I wanted to do something. That I felt like yeah, this really, if it works, could really have a big impact. And so my risk tolerance might have been higher than some, and. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I had been talking to the team at Uber about a position there. I'd been talking a couple other things and I was drawn to Ripple in part because it felt like uh, it, it was it was a big swing, meaning mm-hmm. you know, it was a chance that it was going to be it wasn't going to work. And there's a chance you're like, well, wait a minute. Actually, if this works, it could be a really impactful in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think through a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill, you know, I think we find ourselves in a pretty interesting spot. Okay, so uh, yeah, we don't want to jump that far ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. no. Well, well, for those that don't know, there are um, at a high level two separate components to what you guys are doing. There's Ripple and there's XRP. Uh, I want to make sure that we separate those and uh, talk about each one individually first. So, Ripple. Um, when somebody says to you, "What does Ripple do?" How do you respond and, and kind of describe the business from your perspective? Well, I usually respond by uh, I, I grew up actually in the Midwest in Kansas. And I explained to people that when my mom asks me, what do I do? I say, mom, we sell software to banks. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Not mm-hmm. a lot of drama about that. The fact that the software we're selling includes components of blockchain technologies, includes solutions that leverage digital assets. Mm-hmm. She doesn't, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not even sure customers care. And I think one of my critiques of the crypto ecosystem and before the show, we were talking about this conference in Montreal last weekend, which we can talk more about, but you know, I think there's this echo chamber of people getting so excited about the technology, we lose sight of what problem are we trying to solve for, what customer, and how are we going to do that, and how do you go to market with it? And I think, I think one of the things missing in the crypto ecosystem is really a, a customer fixation. Uh, these are profound technologies, and I think can impact lots of industries in lots of ways. But you know, when I sit in these conferences, sometimes I hear people talking about, and frankly, kind of geeking out about different technical things. I think. You know, okay, that's interesting, but if you don't think about the problem you're trying to solve, and there's a kind of a Silicon Valley statement of, you know, are you a technology in search of a problem or a problem in search of a technology? Mm-hmm. I think with Ripple, we were clear about what problem and how we were going to apply this technology. One of the first things I did when I joined Ripple, there were a number of different projects going on. We had Codius, which is a smart contract platform. We had something called Global Identity, which is intended to be a, 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 a leveraging a blockchain, leveraging the XRP ledger for, for identity management. And then there was this payments solution. And it, one of the hard decisions early on, you know, back to that peanut butter reference, is we're a small company. We cannot pursue all three of those things and be successful. Mm-hmm. Let's pick one. Mm-hmm. Did we pick the right one? I don't know. You know, this is pre-Ethereum as the smart contracts platform. And Vitalik and our CTO at the time, a guy named Stefan Thomas, were close. And actually, Vitalik was staying on his couch and they were talking about smart contracts platforms and there's only a couple hundred people at that point that are into all this stuff right so they all it's knew a pretty each small other. community yeah anyway uh you know we decided to focus on you know payments as a solution and liquidity as a solution for financial institutions and again i you know you can never know is that the right path but i think that focus of going very narrow and very deep has served us well uh, i think there's a lot of people in the industry who've gone wide and thin where uh, there's a lot of experimentation, but not a lot of traction and clear demonstrable usage. For sure. So one caveat I should put out in the conversation, um, which I was somewhat clear on on Twitter, but I think is important for listeners to know, uh, I actually know very little about Ripple and XRP. And so uh, I've got what I'll call a basic understanding of what I could Google around and learn about. Um, So I was excited to do this because one, I get to learn from the source. uh, And then two is to try to get a counterbalance view of the world. I um, reached out to a bunch of people, tweeted a bunch of times saying, hey, you know, send me all the questions, send me all the questions. Uh, So I think I've got a 
much more holistic view, but my understanding of what Ripple is today uh, in terms of products, and, and I want you to kind of gut check me to make sure this is correct, is um, there's three separate products, right? There's XCurrent, XRapid, and XVIA are the ones that kind of came up from all the research online. One, is that an accurate portrayal of kind of the different products? Uh, and then two, can, can you take us through each product and what they do exactly? Sure. So I mean, that, that is a reasonably fair characterization. Okay. You know, there's sure I don't get it perfect. But, yeah. Well, I mean, it, part of that is, you know, anytime you're in a nascent industry, it changes quickly. You know, <laughs> even X Rapid as a product name, we're kind of evolving to something we call just on-demand liquidity because that's okay. more descriptive about what it does. But that's not that critical for today. So those are the three products. I'll talk briefly about them. Uh, X Current is really the idea that banks today use existing pools of liquidity, so pre-funded mm-hmm. accounts. If mm-hmm. I have the Bank of Pomp and the Bank of Brad, you can be Mexican pesos, I'll be US dollars. I would pre-fund Mexican pesos at your bank and you would pre-fund dollars at my bank and then we would use SWIFT to debit and credit that. Mm-hmm. With our first product, X Current, you can do that much more efficiently, much more quickly, than how the current system works. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, banks like that. That's mm-hmm. good. Uh, and so we have had adoption of X current. But to be clear, and I think one of the things that there was misunderstanding about years ago is that doesn't touch crypto. That is, you know, it kind of, we describe it as kind of a temporary blockchain between two endpoints. That's a private transaction. It's not mm-hmm. going to be published. Uh, you know, banks and financial, financial institutions have sensitivity about their transactions being broadcast everywhere. Uh, but that's the first product. Mm-hmm. The second product, X Rapid, which we now really call on-demand liquidity, is this idea that I don't have to pre-fund to the Bank of Pomp. I don't want to put Mexican pesos out there. I don't really trust the Bank of Pomp. And increasingly, I don't want to have truly, there's trillions of dollars pre-funded in accounts around the world. Mm-hmm. If I, as a bank, don't have to pre-fund that liquidity out into the world, I can use it for other purposes. Now, there's a whole bunch of things to go with that. You know, one is if I'm funding the Mexican peso is reasonably stable, but if I was, let's say, the Argentinian peso, there's a lot of currencies out there that you don't want to hold. And if you hold them, you're going to try to hedge them. On top of that, you have things like quarterly compliance requirements about how's the Bank of Pomp doing. I've got, uh, you know, frankly, one of the things that changed after the financial crisis is something called, uh, I forget the name of it at the top of my mind, they changed the regulatory framework, Basel III. Is okay. uh, Basel III changed the regulatory requirement about how banks' tier one capital ratio is calculated. It used to be that the Bank of Brad could trust the Bank of Pomp, and the Bank of Pomp and your regulators could trust the Bank of Brad. Mm-hmm. After the financial crisis, we realized we don't trust other banks. So my deposits that I have at the Bank of Pomp no longer count towards my capital ratio. So when we talk about tier one capital, that no longer counts. Well, guess what? That means the Bank of Pomp and the Bank of Brad, I don't want to have those accounts out there because it means I've got, I need more liquidity elsewhere. And it's because if I if I can bring those back in rather than keep them at your bank, then they count towards my capital. That's correct. Or, or okay. I can I can dividend that money. I can do whatever I want with that money. It's my money. Okay. And and I don't need to hold it on my end in order to still use for transactions. Like I don't just rather than hold it at your institution, I just now hold it at mine for the uh, transaction. Well, that's what. So that's what. This is what on-demand liquidity solves. So with on-demand liquidity or XRapid allows you to do is say, Bank of Pomp holds a dollar. I'm going to sell the dollar. I'm going to buy a unit of XRP. I'm going to move that unit of XRP from a US dollar denominated exchange to a Mexican peso denominated exchange. I'm going to sell the XRP. I'm going to buy a Mexican peso. You can have that whole transaction completed in seconds. What today would mean pre-funding and debiting, crediting, and you know, you're wiring in it. If, if you're a financial institution, you might be sending liquidity in every 10 days or something. 
now I can payment by payment, or even if it's treasury, I can not prefund $10 million a week. I can send, you know, $100,000 every four hours. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to prefund. So that, that allows me to bring working capital back to me. There's payment providers out there. Some of these are public companies. So, you know, this isn't proprietary information. But MoneyGram has negative working capital to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars of negative, negative working capital. Why? Because of these prefunded accounts. Got it. If they don't have the prefunded accounts, all of a sudden they have a lower, I mean, by the way, I'm not pretending we're going to solve this overnight worldwide, but over time, if we can bring that from, you know, a few hundred million to 200 million to 100 million, you know, the the enterprise value of MoneyGram is somewhere around 1.5 billion debt plus the equity. You know, if you can move that by a couple hundred million dollars, that's actually really material to a business like MoneyGram's. Mm -hmm. Now you extrapolate that to not just other remittance companies, but banks, it's a very big deal for how global liquidity is managed and the impact, frankly, to the global economic engine. We make global commerce more efficient by making payments more efficient. Mm-hmm. If we can do that at scale, we can make the whole economy more successful. So one of the questions, well, let's go through XVIA next and then we'll get into the XRP and kind of how that works. I'll keep XVIA okay. super simple. Okay. Think of it as a corporate API wrapper so that a corporate can write to one API and shoot off payments globally. Okay, and this is all over. Uh, one of the other terms that kept coming up is RippleNet. Correct. Is that something separate than these three products? No, or? those three products represent RippleNet. Okay. So when you connect into RippleNet, you're touching those three products. So uh, if I am a bank, can I buy one product and not the other two, or do I get kind of all three wrapped up as one one offering, if you will? From a technical point of view, the way we deploy it is you're kind of getting all the pieces that way, if you signed up for XCurrent and you want to add on to XRapid later or on-demand mm-hmm. liquidity later, it's an easy evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can sign up for one product. And um, am I, as a bank, uh, you know, Ripple comes to me, salesperson or, or customer person, and says, uh, hey, we've got this product. Here's how it works. Here's the advantages, et cetera. Do you want to use it? I'm paying to use that product. Are you uh, taking a transaction fee? Is it an upfront payment? Like, how do, Just how do I interact with Ripple as a company? We have an enterprise sales force the way, I mean, back to yep. my kind of, we're an enterprise software company. Uh, so we have enterprise salespeople out traveling the world, meeting with banks, other financial institutions, and we're signing contracts with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've been pretty- like a traditional tr- software contract. Yeah, uh, I mean, traditional is loose here. I mean, it's not, Salesforce, you just light up an instance. This is not that, right? You're deploying, typically deploying behind the firewall. Okay. And so, you know, I, I generically, uh, you know, without disclosing all of how our contracts work, you know, you're, si- you're paying a software license fee. Mm-hmm. You're typically paying a professional services fee for deployment costs mm-hmm. because, again, we're se- typically sending people to your location to do deployment work. Mm-hmm. And the third is transaction fees. Okay. So kind of like uh, the first two sound similar like an IBM type model, right? Give or take. You, you don't have to say IBM, but somebody like IBM. <laughs> sure. Enterprise software. Yeah, enterprise, software. enterprise software. And then there's a, basically some sort of uh, revenue you guys derive from how much is used or the transaction volume that somebody uh, participates in. Right. Got it. Okay. Um, so you described earlier that um, some of the products use XRP. Let's switch gears from Ripple to XRP now. What is XRP? And, and I think this is where a lot of the controversy lays probably. So right. let, let's be really kind of thorough in terms of how you would describe it and, and kind of what the purpose is. XRP is an open source software. XRP Ledger is open source software. The X, uh, XRP is the digital asset resident on the XRP Ledger. Uh, some of the founders of Ripple were involved with the creation of the XRP Ledger. The XRP Ledger 
started before Ripple, the company, was created. Uh, okay, hold on, exp- explain this. So uh, some of the people from Ripple involved in the creation, but XRP Ledger was actually started before the company Ripple. So the, the, sequentially, yep. group of engineers gets together, and you know, candidly, some of these engineers had been early Bitcoin engineers. Mm-hmm. Their view was, hey, there's going to be some scalability limitations of how Bitcoin works. Mm-hmm. Uh, they set out to build a better Bitcoin. Uh, I think, you know, an impressively prescient way they saw, look, if you extrapolate this out and you really want this to be the future of payments, can you scale a proof of work like model to be to enable an Internet of value? And that's that's challenging. So they were like, and I think they would attest to their original view was, hey, we're going to set out to build a better Bitcoin. We're going to build Bitcoin 2.0. And you know we don't talk about that today because I don't view this as a competition between Bitcoin and XRP. I don't mm-hmm. view. I mean, I think there's going to be multiple winners in this. The, world, the right? internet will take care of that competition. Yeah, they, they definitely well, see it. <laughs> the, the marketplace will take care of the competition. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, it's not going to be the chatter of the echo chamber of Twitter and the crypto world. It's going to be customers. Mm-hmm. You know, is this solving a problem for customers? I just point out. Look, I think one of the areas of FUD is people are like, Brad hates Bitcoin. I am long Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin. I am not bearish on Bitcoin. I, I just don't. Bitcoin is not going to solve a payments problem. So the, the Satoshi white paper says a payments network. It's not going to be a payments network. And the reason is the, the nature of proof of work and from a scalability point of view is significantly limiting how you know the throughput, uh, transaction time, transaction cost. The XRP ledger is much, much, much more efficient. I typically say it's about a thousand times faster per transaction. It's about a thousand times cheaper per transaction. So one of the questions, and we're kind of jumping around a little bit here. So if you're listening, bear with us. Um, one of the things I think that Bitcoiners would say is there's a uh, relationship between security and speed. And uh, if you speed up the transactions, then uh, you could be giving up security. Right, and some, there's some le, le, uh, level of trade-off there. Agree, disagree. Do you think that there's a kind of a, a more gray area? It's not so black and white. Just how do you think of, you know, the, the trade-off between speed, security, Bitcoin, and, and how XRP works? I, I'm going to intentionally somewhat dodge the question. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, I've read that meme, and I, it's kind of a recent meme, in my opinion. I, I didn't hear that two years ago, but now I kind of re- read stuff now, and people say that uh, the XRP ledger has existed since 2012. I think 2012, uh, we've never had a transaction unwound. We've never had a hack against the, the ledger. Like, so do I think we have compromised? Do I, do I think the creators of the XRP ledger compromise security to the benefit of efficiency and speed? I don't see it. I, I, I'd like to see the data that, I, I mean, again, I, I've read that, I've, I've read that meme, mm-hmm. uh, but I've never read it. And, you know, here's an example of where, mm-hmm. There was a people optimized for speed and efficiency, but then there was a, a security issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's a fair point for you to say, hey, look, this has never been hacked. You know, in generalize, um, I think that there's probably other people who have tried to increase efficiency, therefore given up some security, and there has been a hack. And so um, maybe a fair critique of that would be. If it happens one place, doesn't mean it's going to happen everywhere. And also, um, what level of security is needed, right, in order to run a system? Um, and if there is a relationship between security and speed, is there some middle ground between the two, right? Yeah, I guess I'm just I'm challenging the premise that there's a trade-off between yeah, security okay, and so speed. I, 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 by the way, 
I'll be totally candid. The part I'm dodging the question is like, I, I am not the cryptographer at Ripple who's going to. We're in know, the same boat. So, you know, <laughs> I'm a little over my skis and trying to defend this point. But I, I think I'm reasonably smart about this stuff. I have read the meme that mm-hmm. you're trading off security for efficiency. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any proof of that. The people who I trust the most from a technology point of view in this area, I think if they were on your show, would argue that. Yeah. I, I, so I don't feel do, competent ready? enough to do that. The Twitter detectives go to work. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You go argue about that and you can tweet at me about how I'm wrong. But tweet at Joel Katz on that also and he'll defend me. <laughs> no, that, that's fair. Um, all right. So XRP um, is a digital asset that goes on the XRP ledger, right? Um, and then describe uh, kind of how it works into the product itself. Because it sounds like it's not all three products within the RippleNet actually use XRP. Some of them do, some of them don't. So just kind of. Well, the, the only product that we are selling to customers that uses the XRP ledger is on-demand liquidity. Okay. Right. So I was describing the bank of pomp selling, I can't remember if you were dollar peso, yeah. but you're selling whatever that fiat is, you're buying XRP, you're moving it, you're transacting back. Uh, you know, if you're just going point to point on fiat, you're not touching XRP. Mm-hmm. And so um, some of the pieces here, I think are one, uh, banks do this with fiat. It's slow. There's a bunch of issues. There's the deposit issue, um, that stuff. Two is then some people would say, well, why don't you just use Bitcoin or some other digital asset instead of XRP? By the way, it's a great question. I, if, I know I'm interrupting yeah, you, you but if I may. We had a really interesting debate internally when we were architecting and kind of product design around X Rapid or on-demand mm-hmm. liquidity. And one of the debates internally was, well, wait a minute, what happens if we're launching uh, on-demand liquidity into Poland? And there is, I think it's, well, no, maybe let's not use that because I think that's the euro. Let's use uh, Peru. I think it's the lira. You know, to be honest, yeah, I'm Whatever over my skis on that too. If we're going into a market where there's no liquidity with XRP, mm-hmm. then our product isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. So we architected the product to be flexible enough to say, look, maybe ETH has a ton of liquidity into Peru. Mm-hmm. Maybe Bitcoin has a ton of liquidity into Peru. The, the point here is we were focused on solving the customer's problem. If that meant that we were using Bitcoin to solve it, okay. Mm-hmm. So we made the product flexible enough that it would use the most efficient rail. Mm-hmm. Now, it happens to be that we have never used anything other than XRP because actually XRP is extremely fast and extremely inexpensive on a per transaction basis. Do you look at it as XRP is the default and then if there's not the liquidity, then you would go to the other ones, right? Yeah, I think that's the right way to think okay. about it, yeah. Got it. Um, okay. I, I, by the way, the reason why I'm emphasizing that is back to you even, I can't remember what you said earlier, but you're talking about what I heard was kind of this, there is religions around all things crypto tribalism absolutely tribalism religiosity whatever you know and i I think it's really unhealthy okay i i I just had somebody on who said that toxicity was positive so go ahead go (laughs) yeah i I, I don't i don't know who that was but i I, look and i I, at this i mean i thought this conference i was at in montreal is supposed to be super confidential i saw an article about it a modern consensus so apparently it's not that (laughs) confidential but one of the things i argued in front of this kind of hundred people is i don't think what Ripple is doing is competing with almost anybody else in that room at that point. And I'm sure there are examples of people we're competing with, but I want them to be successful. Mm-hmm. I want the ETH projects to be successful. I want the Bitcoin projects to be successful. I, I don't view that as a bad thing for us. In fact, the more successful they are, the better it is for me. In fact, when I hear about companies in our space that are struggling and might have a bad outcome, mm-hmm. that's bad for me. Mm-hmm. I think we're at a stage and you know I, I joined the internet space we didn't get back to my early early time but I moved to Silicon Valley in 1997 this is you know a year ish past the Netscape IPO uh, it was early days mm-hmm. and I feel very similar like look 
all boats can rise here. And I, when I hear about the tribalism, and all the toxicity, I, I'm not here to hate on almost anybody. Would mm-hmm. I, I'm here to hate on people who aren't open-minded and thoughtful and are, you know, maybe almost pedantic in their approach of just like, this is better because mm-hmm. uh, I want to solve a customer problem using a set of technologies that includes the XRP ledger, that includes the digital asset XRP. I think we're doing that effectively. We're scaling very quickly. Uh, it's going well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would think other people would want to root for that success because I think we're the only scaled scaled blockchain crypto solution out there, period, full stop. There's you a think, lot of experiments. You think that you're the only scaled, say that again? I think that what Ripple is doing is the only scaled example of crypto and blockchain being used like at at scale mm-hmm. period how now, do you measure let, let me that? qualify that because yeah, i know yeah, yeah. The, the twitter is gonna <laughs> go berserk on that i just tried to save you for the record know, so how do, how, do you, how do you measure that well i mean like, so first of all i'll back off it by saying look clearly bitcoin as a store of value is a use case i believe in i'm long bitcoin that that is working it's mm-hmm. it is scaled mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm talking about more is that enterprise solution. There's a lot okay. of experiments around how blockchains can impact different kinds of transactions. Mm-hmm. I use the word experiments really specifically. Mm-hmm. I can't point to other examples where, I mean, Ripple has hundreds of customers mm-hmm. using these technologies to solve a real problem. Mm-hmm. We have real volume. Uh, you know, we can get into some of that volume information, but like, Things are going really, really well. Mm-hmm. I want these other projects to do really, really well. So let's get into progress because that, that's a huge question that people have. Just and, and I think this is coming both from the uh, the believers and the detractors camp of just like where are you guys today? So hundreds of customers. Um, my understanding is some big names, some small names, everyone in between. Uh, what kind of data can you share um, in terms of you know kind of milestones or, or data that that um, illuminates what that progress has been? Right. So. Uh, a whole bunch of thoughts I'll throw in here. One yep. is, uh, so we have publicly disclosed, we have over 200 customers. I don't think we've updated the number since then. Uh, you know, we have... You can update right now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I know the exact number. At some point, I, and I, I'm not trying to be tongue-in-cheek, but like you stop counting at some point. It's just like, are we at 248 or 260? I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. What I have also publicly shared is that we have been on a pace of signing about two, uh, two enterprise-grade contracts per week. Okay. So what that basically means is you have 52 weeks in a, a, a year. We're signing on average about 100 contracts. Uh, we'll sign more than that this year. Uh, we beat our forecast for Q3 that just ended last week. And, you know, th- that's a leading indicator of increased adoption. Like, I'll, I'll tell you one interesting kind of anecdote. We were at Cybos big banking conference in London a few weeks ago and meeting with uh, a bank we don't work with today, big transaction bank, correspondent bank. And... Uh, the team there was sitting down and the, the, one of the guys in the room said, well, it's become a question of not if we're going to work with Ripple, it's when, because 26 of their correspondents are already working with Ripple. Got it. So if you're this bank and you're not working with Ripple, it actually is inefficient for them not to actually join the network. Mm-hmm. And this is a, one of the reasons why I get excited about the business model. The network effects, you know, there's Metcalf's law, the value of a network expands based on the square of the nodes on the network. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that happen. You know, the, the thing that that the skeptics should ask is, well, if you were one of the first five customers to sign up for RippleNet, why would you sign up? Mm-hmm. It's like the first person bought a telephone. There's nobody to talk to, mm-hmm. which is true. I tell my sales lead that his job gets easier day by day. And look, there's evidence to show that it does. Now, translating that traction with a customer contract, and one of the first 
uh, OKRs, which is how we kind of manage objectives and key results. You're using Silicon Valley language. Sorry, you're yeah. going to get them all uh, messed up. OKRs are basically uh, like key performance metrics. Perfect. Uh, when I first got to the company, our kind of key performance metric was contracts. Mm-hmm. And over time, I realized that the contracts wasn't the most important metric. It was deployments. Because you can sign the contract, but if it's not deployed within some reasonable amount of time, you haven't made that much progress. Then we started tracking deployments as the most important metric. And then we realized it's actually not deployments, it's actually volume. Because at some point you want to sell the contract, deploy it, and then you want volume going over. Either a new use case being built on a new rail or moving existing volume over to that rail. Mm -hmm. So today the key metric we track more than anything else is volume. We track primarily volume by number of transactions as opposed to dollar volume. Okay, And the reason is, like to some degree, you could do a small number. We have a handful of customers that are it's uh, you know corporate use cases where there's one large bank uh, where their average transaction size is tens of millions of dollars per transaction. Mm-hmm. That kind of skews all the other data because you have other transactions like thirty dollars each. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we think about the number of transactions. The number of transactions has been doubling quarter over quarter for about eight quarters. Okay. Well, we, give us a ballpark of where... I don't know. Are, are I honestly don't... Thousands, millions? Oh, many thousands. Uh, we're not yet... Uh, I There's a chance we'll hit millions this year. Millions per quarter or millions per year? There's a chance we'll hit, there's a chance we'll hit millions this year. So millions in For, one single 12-month period. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Look, um, I know... I mean, there's a couple of things on you know, why we're kind of protective about what we disclose. One is these are banks... These yeah, are financial yeah. institutions. Like, I don't have permission to share, you know, uh, they, they get rather sensitive when I start yeah. sharing specifics about their transaction bank. It's, it's confidential so information I, to them. I, I will, uh, I'll let you off the hook to a degree with uh, one question that I saw f- uh, from Twitter, and I forget who asked it, so I apologize, uh, but you get credit. This is my credit to uh, the Twitter user. Is um, They said, what percentage of the customers, right? So they basically were saying, look, I believe that you signed up all these customers, right? It's very obvious that if you have a better software product to give to them, it can help them run their business. Duh, they're going to pay for it. It's just classic business. Uh, but what percentage of the customers have more than 1% of all their volume going oh. through uh, a Ripple net type engagement or, or yeah. product versus that's a, that's 99% a, going elsewhere? By the way, I think that's a, a good and interesting question. Yeah, I thought it, it was. It, <laughs> it, it presumes that I know their total volume. That, that's fair. Which... I would imagine typically we don't know. Okay. Now, uh, I mean, there are some customers where, I mean, let's, let's use MoneyGram as an example that's very public that they're working with us and what have you. Right now, we're only live in you know, two corridors. Okay. Mexican and, peso and Philippine peso. Okay. So my get, I'm, I'm purely just conjecture here, and they're a public company, so somebody could probably figure this out. But even if we had 100% of their volume live in the Mexican peso and Philippine peso, what percentage of the total would that be? I don't know. I mean, my guess is those two quarters. I mean, Mexico is probably a very, very big percentage mm-hmm. of their business, meaning, well, but big meaning maybe 20 at most, mm-hmm. maybe 10. What, I don't know. What do you think? Um, let's just take that as an example. Uh, what do you think your volume in Mexican peso is in terms of compared to them using RippleNet versus not? 50 50? It's less than that now in ramping. And the reason why that's the case is it, we are slowly increasing. One of the key things we talked about earlier <clears throat> is you need liquidity between XRP and MXN. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the challenges I think for the whole crypto world is uh, I, I've been fond of saying that the long-term value of any digital asset will be derived from the utility it delivers. Mm-hmm. The utility for most crypto today is purely speculation. Now, we could argue that that's a step forward from 
you know, illicit use cases of Silk Road. And so we've gone from illicit use cases to speculation. I think the next chapter will be all about real utility. Mm-hmm. But if today 99.9% is speculation, I have said, you know, look, we want to get all crypto from 99.9 to 99 to 98 to 97, what have you. There have been days over the last you know, handful of weeks where 80% of the volume to XRP and MXN was associated with our on-demand liquidity product. Mm-hmm. So we went from 99.9 to 20 being mm-hmm. speculation. Now, that actually creates a different problem. The problem that creates is if there's not enough liquidity, can we push more value through that pipe unless there's more liquidity? Mm-hmm. And so we work with market makers. And to some degrees, liquidity begets liquidity. If if there's a market there, market makers, whether you know in all shapes and sizes, will participate uh, and hoping to kind of generate their own value from participating there. For sure. And, and so um, last question around kind of just progress. Uh, as you're signing, let's say, two contracts per week on average, right, you're kind of doubling the transactions quarter over quarter. Um, things appear, you know, based on that data, kind of going being up and to the right. Where are you finding um, a bank that is uh, kind of the average customer? What is the value to them, right? In terms of you've got these three products, are they coming in and saying, hey, I'm actually using all three of these as part of RippleNet and I kind of get the full experience. Do you find that they're just using one of the three more than the others? Like what is the, I guess, kind of the value proposition that the average customer is finding today? I would say 90% of the customer's first touch point is for X current. Okay. Because it's solving a problem that they, it's, it's easy to kind of explain the value proposition. You already have two pools of liquidity. You're using some sort of solution to settle between those to, you know, for messaging. This is a better way to do that, and that's the entry point. Once we are at the entry point, then we can say to the Bank of Pomp, hey, you have, you know, you have a correspondent in the Philippines. You're, the, the cost to maintain that correspondent is whatever. Hey, there's a better way to do that. Let's find a more efficient way to do that. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, when people first hear the word crypto, there's a little bit of a, uh, particularly in the banking world. Once you explain to someone that every Ripple-enabled transaction is KYC'd, mm-hmm. every Ripple-enabled transaction is checked for AML, OFAC, you know, other acronyms filled mm-hmm. in, all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, this is just, this is better, this is a better way to facilitate liquidity. Mm-hmm. I think that the posture for banks changes pretty quickly. If you don't mind, I'll tell you one anecdote on this. Yeah, go ahead. It's kind of funny. Uh, about two and a half years ago, a very senior guy from a big correspondent bank uh, with whom we were working says, hey, Brad, you know, look, we're super excited to be working with you. I just want you to know that this whole, like, they were using X current. And, you know, he took it upon himself to say, look, uh, we love what we're doing, but just so you know, like, we're never going to use crypto for liquidity. Okay, I get you. Thank you. You know, uh, we're thrilled to be working with you. Happy place. 18 months later, same guy and the CEO of the entire bank come to visit our office in San Francisco. And what they said is, hey, we're ready to start talking about how you can help us with liquidity. Mm-hmm. What was interesting to me about that is, you know, we had the opportunity to talk to them about how they can use XRP for liquidity because we we're already a trusted partner in solving a problem for them and how they already worked. And I, I think that we keep kind of breaking down those walls. And I think that's good for the whole crypto community, by the way. Mm-hmm. D- dispelling the idea that crypto is inherently somehow you know, used for illicit purposes and those mm-hmm. things. You know, I think it's talking about real use cases, solving real problems, having real utility, I think is good for the whole industry. So uh, this is a great segue because another set of questions, and this came from a, a whole different group of people, and I kind of distilled them down into a couple of bullet points, um, was... 
One of the big things that I think um, Bitcoin specifically gets uh, both praise and detraction about is uh, its lack of um, ability for law enforcement or governments to stop it. Right. So there's a lot of people who love the fact that, hey, you can't censor this stuff. You can't seize it. You know, all the all the things that we you know believe it that Bitcoin brings to the table. The flip side of that is there's a lot of people who don't like that. Right. Hey, there's. Economic sanctions and governments yeah, all, don't like that. All it's it's not a lot of people don't like that. <laughs> governments don't like that. <laughs> There's plenty of people, right? Um, and so there was a whole set of questions. I, I kind of just put this under like law enforcement and governments. Um, and so things like, you know, how does Ripple deal with government requests about user information or account blacklisting and, and the things that I think people say that's not possible when it comes to Bitcoin? How do you guys handle that? Have you guys had those requests? Maybe just kind of elaborate on some of those issues. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry, your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you gotta do is go to coinmine.com, you buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right, you purchase it, it shows up at your doorstep, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi, five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. How does Ripple deal with government requests about user information or account blacklisting and, and the things that I think people say that's not possible when it comes to Bitcoin? How do you guys handle that? Have you guys had those requests? Maybe just kind of elaborate on some of those issues. Well, I'll start with a rather simplistic answer. Mm-hmm. We don't. Right? We don't onboard customers. Mm-hmm. The Bank of Pomp does. Okay. If the government wants to come and look at a transaction for the Bank of Pomp, they go to the Bank of Pomp. Then nothing changed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the, I'm being a little bit overly simplistic, yep. but n- the way that the Bank of Pomp is regulated today, whether they're using Ripple's technologies underneath or not, mm-hmm. doesn't change. Okay. So in the when they want to come and val- this is for Ripple. Yep. If they want to come and validate a... I, mean, I can't remember the exact example you were yep. using. So, so let's, let's say that I want to, I'll give you two examples. Let's say that uh, I'm a person of interest to the government and I send a transaction to somebody. It goes through RippleNet, XRP. Well, it, it goes through a bank it go, yeah, or it goes a, through a regulated financial institution. And, and my it goes to another regulated financial institution. Yep. And the government says, I want to learn more about that. They go to the bank. 
And I'm assuming that they send you guys requests as well, or no? Uh, I mean, we, we we don't necessarily have the idea. You know, back to the privacy of mm-hmm. you know, we sign a customer. We don't necessarily have that information. We, as a matter of fact, not just we don't necessarily. I'm trying to think of an example where we would have that information. Mm-hmm. If the Bank of Pomps transacted the Bank of Brad, I you know I, I don't get the identity because I didn't do an onboarding. So basically, the way and, and this is me learning here for a second. Um, there's two ways that these systems work, right? Is uh, there could be, um, I don't want to call it shielded because I think that has a negative connotation, but basically this idea that uh, Bank of Pomp sends money to Bank of Brad, the processor of that transaction can see personally identifiable, uh, identifiable information. It can see all the details, the transaction, who it is, all that kind of stuff. And then there's a way for it to basically happen without any sort of information being shared from the bank to the uh, payment processor. Which bucket are you guys in? The latter. The latter, okay. I mean, but both endpoints, the, the Bank of Pomp, and maybe I shouldn't say the Bank of Brad because I am Ripple, but uh, you know, both endpoints see the information and they have access to the information. And we actually, one of the things that we do through RippleNet is make the passing of that information much more robust than how Swift works today. So Got it. the banks like that. Uh, and frankly, governments like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- this idea that, I, independent of my own political views, mm-hmm. this idea that crypto is going to kind of take down governments uh, m- might be for certain segments appealing. I think about this a little more pragmatically. How do we apply these technologies to bring greater efficiency to commerce, to greater efficiency for the immigrant who lives in you know, San Jose, California, and wants to send money home to Guatemala, and 30% of their transaction is coming out in fees? Like, that's shitty. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't need to be yeah, that you're, way. You're, you're basically saying, like many companies in crypto, for sure, uh, hey, there's rules, there's regulations, we are gonna play within the rules and regulations. Fair, yeah, fair. Well, right. But the only thing you said there that I didn't necessarily agree with okay. is like many in crypto. Oh. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think one of the challenges is a lot of people in crypto, I think, are doing a disservice by you know championing things that we know that governments aren't going to be on board with. Yeah. Well, I think I, it's, and, and, and part of it, too, is right. It's always a balance between uh, somebody's got to break the rules to change the rules. But at the same time, uh, if you break the wrong rules or you do the wrong things, then there's punishments, right? And so yeah, it's kind of, I've got a, You ready for this? I got a saying that uh, one of my partners says all the time. He goes, uh, pioneers end up in ditches, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Well, look, I also think there's a difference between, you know, I can, on a personal level, I can look at what Uber was doing and kind of disrupting the taxi union and think, okay, like I get it. You know, when you start talking about the disruption of, let's say, you know, the intentional circumvention of KYC requir- requirements, you know, I know there are examples and, you know, uh, with governments that maybe aren't to be trusted. And you could argue maybe the U.S. government yeah, isn't yeah. to be trusted. We live in a world of governments. That's not going to change anytime soon. We do a kind of an annual customer conference called Swell. And a couple of years ago, actually, exactly two years ago, we did it in Toronto. And Ben Bernanke was our keynote. And I thought, you know, first of all, I thought it was great. Back to, like, it's good for the crypto community that Ben Bernanke is doing a keynote for a crypto conference, in effect. I mean, obviously, Ripple's a little different. You also had Snoop Dogg once, right? That was for, uh, he wasn't speaking at a conference, but he was, that's another story. We can talk about that next. (laughs) I'm just impressed that you got Ben Bernanke and And Snoop Dogg Dogg at two separate things. That's only six months apart. Keep keep going. All right. So what Ben Bernanke was saying, which I I subscribe to, is that if you're talking about G20 markets, to give up the ability for them to control their money supply is giving up their sovereignty. 
they're going to bring out the tanks before they give up their sovereignty. His point was basically that, you know, if, if what you are doing is threatening, to, threatening the sovereignty of a nation, that is a, that is a very high kind of attack on a nation, and they're going to fight that aggressively. And so I, when I see people doing things in the crypto world that I feel like, and I use G20 specifically, because look, there are many countries who have already lost control of their money supply. You know, we could choose Zimbabwe as an example uh, that is amusing to learn about. But there's a whole lot of markets, you know, and I, I use the G20 that they're not going to just sit idly by and, you know, have their fiat and have their ability to control monetary policy be disrupted. For sure. One more question on this, and then we'll move on. Um, if I am uh, Bank of Poppins, since we won't use Bank of Brad, we, we'll, for uh, laughs and, uh, and jokes, uh, we'll call Bank of Satoshi that I'm going to send <laughs> send money to. Very good. Uh, if I, send I, from, I think there would be a Bank of Satoshi by now. There probably is. So somebody somewhere somebody, has created yeah, yeah. it. They, somebody definitely bought the domain, bankofsatoshi.com. You're welcome for the free advertising. Um, if I send money from Bank of Pomp to Bank of Satoshi, but Bank of Satoshi is located in Iran, let's say, right? So a company that, or a country that is sanctioned by the US, um, massive ramifications if you tried to do this in the tr- you know quote unquote traditional banking system. One, can I do that? through RippleNet, I'm assuming no, but I'll let you clarify. And then two, uh, along with that, can you as Ripple or RippleNet blacklist certain accounts, et cetera, or is that done at a bank level? Like what is your control over in terms of blacklisting and and preventing sending of money? In reverse order, we can't blacklist because we don't have PII. Okay, so if I could, blacklist pomp i would that's just a general rule <laughs> not pomp but there's some others out there that i might we could uh on the first question we don't work with any banks in iran mm-hmm. uh you know when we think about what qual so first of all there's obviously u.s government requirements about certain countries you can't do business with iran would be on that list mm-hmm. when we think beyond that you know if if a bank is a swift enabled bank we generally look at that and say okay they're part of the global banking infrastructure mm-hmm. Ergo, there's no reason why Ripple shouldn't work with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the question is less about the specific country, more so uh, whatever the rules of a legacy bank are presented, right? So if they can't send money to Iran, XRP can't be sent there as well through RippleNet because you're working with these banking partners. Yeah, and, and keep in mind that the Bank of Pomp, at the end of the day, you, you Bank of Pomp can be connected to RippleNet, and you still are choosing with whom you're settling across the network. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if let's not use Iran, let's use... Uh, well, let's use Zimbabwe because I imagine a lot of people might have concerns about settling with banks in Zimbabwe. Uh, you know, I think you may choose. I'm not. I'm even though I'm connected to RippleNet, even though it's super efficient, it's super fast, super low cost. Do I want to have as a correspondent a bank in Zimbabwe? That, you know, that that's up to you. It's up to me. Yeah, got it. All right. So I want to play a game uh, <coughs> that I call Devil's Advocate. But before we play, um, and, and the point of this game is essentially to uh, present to you the I can't say thousands, hundreds of people or tens of people who tweeted at me all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories, uh, detractions, uh, and then even some that seemed pretty valid, right, in in terms of uh, what they were saying. Before we do that, though, the number one topic by far that everyone was focused on was XRP sales, right? There was a whole bunch of stuff around that. Before I ask any questions, you just kind of describe how do the sales work and kind of as you sit on the ripple side as ceo um how do you view xrp escrow 
sales, revenue, all this kind of yeah. stuff. All right, so I'm, I, I'll start talking about it. I'm sure I'm going to miss a couple things you should ask about there because uh, there are a whole bunch of good questions in there. It's a great interview technique to throw out a bunch of questions and, and then just see, what see where I bite. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, look, I'm glad you're asking about this. I think there's a bunch of misinformation. You mm-hmm. know, before the show, I said to you, look, one of the reasons I'm here is because I think there's a bunch of misinformation and I think we need to get a little more aggressive about clarifying some of that. The first thing I'll say is that people kind of lose sight of, I think, is we are the most interested party in the success and health of the XRP ecosystem. We being Ripple. We Ripple. Yep. We yep. own, I mean, it's very transparent. Yep. We own a lot of XRP. Uh, anything we do that's not good for the XRP ecosystem is not good for, I mean, by the way, there's a whole bunch of other players in the XRP ecosystem. Some mm. of the companies we've invested in, some are doing their own independent thing. Just this week, you know, a bunch of announcements about SDK. This is uh, an announcement this week around SDKs around the XRP ledger that I think are, Profound, and we'll only see more people building on top of the XRP ledger. That's good for the whole the whole group. When we think about what we're doing, we've tried one to be very transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the kind of context of leading by example, I think one of the limitations that the crypto ecosystem broadly faces is lack of transparency. If we're not going to be transparent, we shouldn't expect people to you know trust us. Now, in some ways, I admit in a frustrating way, our transparency has opened us up to attack. Okay, so hold on, pause for a second. Pause. The one thing that I will say is um, I do believe that your life would be easier if you didn't provide any information because people Sadly, would- Sadly, I agree. Because people would, what I, what I honestly believe, and this is across every single company, public companies specifically, right? Public companies would have less scrutiny in many cases if they were private, right? Same thing kind of applies here is uh, the more information you put out, whether you're right or wrong, whether uh, you're fully transparent or semi-transparent, people then now have data points, right? right? And they can use that to all that stuff, right? I, now, I, I, there's an example of this I'll point to. I, okay. I, Joe Lubin and I were on a panel in Davos earlier this year. Okay. And Joe Lubin was criticizing, I can't remember exactly, there's a video of it somewhere out on the internet, but he was criticizing, you know, Ripple and XRP and, you know, and I was like, wait, wait, wait. While you were on the panel with him? Yeah. Hey, by the way, I, I actually like ball, that's pretty I, ballsy. He was being direct. You know, I don't I think it kind of backfired on him. You can go watch the video, you can make your own judgment. But I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Before you're gonna criticize what Ripple's doing, how much how much ETH does Joe Lubin own? How much ETH does Consensus own? How much are you selling? Mm-hmm. What are you using that for? And you know, look, I, I think the best way to lead is by example. And so Ripple has tried to lead by example. Okay. Uh talk about the mechanism of escrow sales kind of how the whole process works right so just structurally, uh, don't worry about numbers for right now yeah i'm going to try to remember the exact time for about two years ago one of the big you know kind of uh, overhangs if you will concerns about the xrp market had been ripple owns a lot of it what happens if ripple decides to sell a lot of it i always use the argument well that wouldn't be in ripple's best interest so why would we do that and the concern there is basically if you dump it all in the market all at once it would depress the price that that's that's one of the concerns yeah. i think there's some others but yes and i of course would always you know i always thought it was a little bit of just a silly argument because that would not be in our best interest so why would we ever do that we we took that off the table as a concern by saying look i'll tell you what we are going to lock up in so the xrp ledger has a capability called an escrow okay. it can be cryptographically signed sealed if you will and we created 55 contracts 55 escrows that effectively uh, become unlocked once a month for 55 months. There was 1 billion XRP in each escrow. So in month so one. Fi- so 55 billion XRP went into locked escrow. up in, in an escrow. Well, in 55 escrows. Yep. And then each one kind of on a 
month-by-month month basis, each one kind of fires off and releases 1 billion XRP. Correct. When it releases, where does it go? We can do whatever we want with it. Okay, we being Ripple. We Ripple. Okay. I mean, these escrow, you know, Ripple owns the XRP. Yep. We on our own accord. And you guys own the escrow. So, because uh, one of the things that I don't think I understood well, and people were asking questions, so I apologize to anyone who All thinks right. I get this wrong, is... Um, they were like, it's not real escrow because Ripple still owns it. What you're basically saying is, but it's, it's a cryptographically crypto, yeah. signed. We can't unlock it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's, I guess somebody could make the argument you quote unquote own it, but there's cryptographic signage on it, yeah. and you don't, you can't, we can't violate sell, it. Correct. Right. That's okay. correct. Okay. So, we, so you get the lock, billion, you get the billion XRP once a month for fifty five months. We use some of it for uh, deals. Well, back to you asked. Hey, we sell some programmatically. Mm-hmm. I want to talk. I'm digress on that. For you asked about it earlier, I didn't touch on it. We sell XRP two different ways. Okay. One is OTC over the counter. Okay. Institutions come to us. They want exposure to XRP rather than going into the market. Sometimes they'll come to us and we'll facilitate facilitate a transaction. What, what? Okay, let's go real slow here because this is where all the questions were. Um, what are the types of institutions that come for OTC? Are these like hedge fund, crypto hedge funds, or are these the yes. more like bank customer types? More the former than the latter. More the okay. So this is more. more this is more. Uh, Crypto speculators okay, are coming that, to you and saying, hey, we'd like to buy over-the-counter. Correct. Got so, it. So now, two things about the over-the-counter piece. One is, you know, so over the history of the time I've been in the company, I don't know, order magnitude, we'd have 20 to 30 unique players come to us to buy XRP. No, that's really not that many. I thought it was going to be way higher than that. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we basically have stopped all OTC in large part because our attitude is, look, there's enough liquidity out in the market. You can go into the market and get it. Market being you can go on an exchange or you can go to other OTC There's providers. There's a lot of very successful OTC desks, and we refer people to those OTC desks. Or you yeah, could go in and you know, buy it on an exchange. It depends on the size. but uh, So, you know, we back to our transparency, we put out what's called the XRP market report. Okay. Once a quarter, at the end of each quarter, we will publish exactly, you know, hey, this is how much XRP came out. This is how much XRP went in. Uh, this is how much we sold. We mm-hmm. sold some programmatically. We some sold OTC. Uh, you know, last quarter was a high watermark in terms of the dollar value of XRP sold. Okay. And one of the things that we actually agree with is we tried to have a constructive way to engage the market by saying we're going to sell OTC and we're going to sell programmatically at 10 basis points of daily market activity. Okay, so and that's a combined OTC and programmatic, or ten no, basis points each. Ten basis points. Well, the OTC tends to be a little bit, uh, you know, lumpy. Lumpy. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I forgot how that's helpful. The the ten basis points is much easier. The challenge of the ten basis points became that we were using coin market cap as the measurement stick. Oops. You know. What uh, do you use uh, now? Sh- we uh, crypto compare top tier CCTT. Okay. And. Uh, we think that's a much more trusted. They have an interesting construct around, uh, I'm, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but kind of tier A, tier B, or tier one. You think it's higher two. quality? It's a higher quality. I think it's a more trustworthy measure of actual volume in XRP liquidity. Okay. So, so let me ask one question real quick. Um, and this is more personal curiosity. 10 basis points of daily market volume, or of market volume, is that daily, monthly? Daily. Okay, so basically daily. every day, would it be fair to say you guys are... 10 basis points of the volume, give or take, depending on dilution, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I'm not sure I understand. So like, let's, let's, say there's 100, let's just say that there's a $100 million worth of daily volume before you guys do anything, right? 
That means that we would be a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, you'd yes. be ten, 10 basis points. Okay, got it. Every so day, ninety nine point nine percent of all XRP trading, we have nothing to do with. Got it. Okay. Uh, we have, based upon what we saw with Coin Market Cap, we've continued to kind of constrain what we're doing. In part because I think people very appropriately are pointing out, like, hey, Coin Market Cap isn't right, the right measure. Yeah. Uh, you know, is Coin Market Cap going to back to the transparency? And like, yeah. I, I would challenge them to challenge themselves. Like, it's bad for the whole market that that's not a more trusted source. Yeah. So, okay, so programmatically let's say the last couple of quarters, how much do you think you've sold? And, and again, one caveat to this whole conversation, right? I think a lot of people want me to like hold your feet to the fire and say like, oh, you said $100 million, but it was 102. Yeah, here's the good news. Just ballpark. There's a public number out there that we have published <laughs> uh, for every quarter for the last eight to 10 quarters. Give us the ballpark in terms of the I mean, programmatic. I think Q1... Well, no, I, I, I don't know if I can parse programmatic from OTC top of okay. mind. I think Q1 both combined is about 170 million USD. Okay. And Q2 is about 250 million USD. Okay. Q3 is going to be dramatically lower. Okay. We will put that XRP markets report out in a couple, or, I don't know, a week Whatever. or two. Okay. No, so two weeks. A couple more questions here. Um, and again, I caveat all this, but this is where all the questions are. Um, one, what are you doing with the money? So basically, uh, there's let's call it Q1. There's three billion XRP, right? That get unlocked over a three month period. Yeah, you so take that. in the markets report. By the way, okay. we would have said, and I don't know top of mind, yep. but three billion came unlocked, and this is how much went back into the fifty sixth, fifty seventh, fifty eighth contract or escrows. Got it. So you so will, you will contribute some of it back to the another escrow. Not just some of it, but most of it. I mean, I, I would you know order magnitude eighty percent of it goes back goes back in. Okay. You then sell 170 million Q1, 250 round numbers for Q2. Um, I think one of the, uh, well, we're getting into the devil's advocate game now. Uh, one of them is, what do you guys need all the money for? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, one, we're investing in both the company. Uh, we're investing in uh, the, the, you know, MoneyGram is an interesting mm-hmm. deal. We, as I think is very widely known, we committed $50 million to invest in MoneyGram. Uh, I think that has been a very successful partnership and investment for them and for us. Uh, they're super happy about it. We're happy about it. And again, I think these the more we're doing to demonstrate scaled use cases of solving real problems, I think that's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and how much of the unlock, um, one of the other questions was around, how much of the unlock goes to the company versus what they called company affiliates and that was founders foundations kind of all this other stuff well what we're talking about right now is only what the company owns okay so only ripple the billion gets released and you use some of it for selling revenue right that you can then go invest and do all that stuff with and then some of it just gets contributed back into future locked escrows correct okay one of the other big ones um, was uh, misleading market cap, right? And so the big question here was, um, and I'm literally going to read to you almost verbatim. I'm good. Uh, just to make sure I don't screw it up. Uh, the last thing I want is to ask you tough questions and then have get me get yelled at by the internet. Here's the good news. I actually want you to ask tough questions. Because I, I, I honestly think that like most of the tough questions, I think there's like, like I'm not an irrational human being. All right. So hold on. I, have to, I do have to say this on the record so everyone can hear it. We've never met before. No, we haven't. We've never talked before. Uh, somebody asked me the other day uh, what I thought about this. And I said, I, look, I never met the guy before. We got some mutual friends. They speak highly of you. Um, 
And I said, but I'll tell you what, the guy's got balls to come in here, <laughs> has no clue what I'm about to ask him. <laughs> so I'll give him that. Actually, well, you know, I'm glad you say that because I think some people are like, oh, well, you know, he has to be, have pre-approved questions. I think what I said to you before we started is like, look, anything's fair game. Yeah. Like, I, I, let's, I will even go further as to say uh, the folks that know that I was talking to some of the people at Ripple about doing this, uh, that was going to be one of my, um, uh, what do they call it, uh, like uh, stopping points is if they said, hey, I got to see the questions first, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. So misleading market cap, currently stated market cap counts all distributed tokens, including those sent to founders, affiliated foundations, and customers. Most of those, though, are held with restricted selling agreements, so they're not actually liquid, If, which can lead to an overstated market cap. If the market cap did not include those, then the implied inflation rate would be much higher. Therefore, it would be a better signal for uh, the downward selling pressure on XRP. Super complicated question. Yeah. I'm so going to caveat it with one, parse it a little one bit. quick sentence. Basically, if you look at the data, the way that some of this is calculated can be, in the detractor's eyes, misleading. Therefore, people can't run correct models to understand the inflation rate. Look, I get the question, actually, at a high yeah. level. My, my response is largely, how do you calculate? So we all look at the, quote, inflation rate of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. What yep. about the whales who bought Bitcoin in, you know, in year one, and they're selling some now? Yep. Do, we, do we count that in the inflation rate? Mm-hmm. We don't. But isn't that the exact same thing as you know, a founder of Ripple or the, a founder of the XRP ledger who's selling some XRP? I, I'm not disputing the kind of, I, I think, and I don't know who asked the question, but I, I'm not disputing that, okay, if we looked holistically about the introduction of supply of XRP, Ripple is one component of it. Mm-hmm. I think about Ripple's participation in the increase of supply equal to the mining increase and the increase of supply of ETH or Bitcoin. Okay. Because ETH has a whole bunch of, I mean, non-mining related supply that's introduced, right? Yeah. So does Bitcoin. So does XRP. I, I, so I, and I'm not trying to dodge the question. I'm just saying that like the, the, the question applies to, well, I guess the question is on more on market cap specifically. Well, well so here, here's the market cap is, I think there's two components to this. One is um, included in the market cap is uh, tokens that are held by restrictive selling agreements. Right. Yes. Well, I think that's really referring to one of the co-founders of the XRP Ledger and the co-founders of Ripple is a guy named Jed McCaleb. Jed had threatened, well, he didn't just threaten, he said he was going to dump all of his XRP. He was trying, I mean, he had left Ripple and he was trying to start a competitor to Ripple called Stellar. And he said he was going to dump this. There was court activity and a settlement that restricted his ability to sell because he was trying to act in a, you know, not in a good way to the market. Got it. Um, and so... I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, but yeah. tangentially related to this, uh, when you guys sell Ripple OTC... XRP. Or I'm sorry, <laughs> XRP. Do you guys put restricted selling agreements on anyone who buys OTC? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes. It, and, it, it largely depends. I mean, look, if somebody came to us... Well, keep in mind, by the way, we the amount of OTC we're doing now is dramatically less than we were before mm-hmm. for the reasons we've kind of talked about before. Yep. Uh, you know, if somebody was coming to us and saying, I want to buy $20 million of XRP, uh, you know, there is a risk that someone would want to do that and somehow have ill intent. And so we might have restrictions on that. You know, they're also back to the whales point, you know, and you could argue actually what Ripple has done is healthier than what you have in the ETH environment or Bitcoin, because there are no restrictions. Now, I think in all of these environments, people are probably acting in the best interest because if you're holding, a, yeah, g- like, generally, right. Yeah, yeah. You, unless you're irrational, 
or not very smart. Would there be a way for you to, and, and I'll caveat again, uh, sitting as a person trying to understand how you guys are thinking about this and also understanding kind of the other side, there's sensitivities whenever you're doing business transactions with, I'll call them customers, partners, whoever. Um, and so you don't want to, you know, uh, open source your contracts, right? For, yeah, for right, example. Right. But is there a way to be uh, more transparent is kind of a negative connotation, but just more transparent uh, around what those selling uh, restrictions are, um, either on a customer basis or on a more kind of generalized uh, basis? I mean, here's kind of my reaction to this. Okay, so we're already 10 or 100 times more transparent than anybody in the crypto community, and we get attacked for doing that. And I think you just asked me to be more transparent. I think I'm going to pass. Yeah. I mean, I, look, look, I'm it's not a trying to position. Yeah, it's just kind of like, like we are doing what we think are smart, strategic things mm-hmm. to leverage our balance sheet mm-hmm. in a way that we think is you know, rational and thoughtful about catalyzing this whole area. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I going to you know share our you know the, the Coca formula of like hey, here's how we're doing things? I mean, is it that secret and special? Yeah, we can debate that, but like. This is actually, so here's what I'll say. This is one thing where uh, if people were, and there actually are some people who want you guys to do this, right? Uh, Said, basically open source the contracts, right? Like show us exactly what every single contract looks like with every single customer. I actually think that's like pretty far overkill, right? Just given that you're trying to run a business, et cetera. So so I'll I'll definitely um, kind of call that out. If I may, I think one of the challenges for how capitalism has evolved, period, is we're very short-term centric. Mm Mm-hmm. I have been very public and saying, look, I'm taking a very long view of the company we're trying to create. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I piss some people off in the short term, I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I, I think, I think, you know, I didn't talk about this earlier, but I was in business school when Jeff Bezos is 1996. Jeff Bezos hadn't really launched Amazon. He came to my class in 1996, talked about Amazon. and It was Amazon books. Really? And he talked about, and I, since then I've been enamored, a bunch of my classmates ended up working at Amazon and I've been kind of enamored watching the company. And I think what they have done has been very, very impressive in lots of ways. But one of the things I have looked at, I think about Ripple is to cross-border payments as Amazon is to books. Okay, you gotta explain that. Amazon, Amazon launched one vertical, books. Had they not succeeded in books, they never would have been able to do DVDs or music or you know now AWS, right? <laughs> AWS, right? That's the infrastructure level. When I think about what Ripple's doing, there's a lot of different applications of blockchain technologies. There's a lot of different ways we could use the XRP ledger. We started with a vertical around cross-border payments, partly because it's a massive market, partly because it's a very clear pain point. Mm-hmm. You have customers who don't like the incumbents. They're happy to engage. But what I've said to the company is, look, we have to be successful in books, AKA cross-border payments, or we don't get permission to go to the second vertical. But ultimately, I see what Ripple's doing with blockchain technologies as we're going to enter other verticals for mm-hmm. sure. What, it, what will they be? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I should open source that too. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, just throw one out there that yeah. that would be another type that you would enter. I, I mean, look, we have... Uh, so, You're a master at dodging. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I can't. I mean, that's, that, 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 that's one. Look, we're looking at lots of different things. Other types of financial services. I'll give you another interesting example right. real quickly. Do you know who the largest investor was in Pets.com when it went bankrupt? I do not. Amazon. Really? The only reason I point that out is, look, we, we have made a bunch of investments in other mm-hmm. projects going on out there. I think right now Ripple is the largest investor in crypto period. We've invested about $500 million in other crypto projects. Okay. We're going to make a bunch of investments, a lot of different things. 
some of them unrelated to the XRP world, some very related, some related to Ripple, some unrelated, some related to payments, some unrelated. Some of those may be things that we end up buying. Some of those maybe end up things that we... Investing with. Yeah, we're, we're great. Got it. My point to some degree is in the nascent stage of a market and watching Amazon lose money on pets.com, mm-hmm. that was totally okay, yeah. right? You know, they were learning as they went and we're going to do the same thing. There will certainly be other verticals that we go after at Ripple and I'm not even sure how I got on this topic. That's good. That's, that's the point of why I'm All here right. to interview you yeah. is just to lead you with breadcrumbs. Well, you asked me a question. <laughs> I somehow got on the Amazon. No, no, no. I'm not sure. All right. So, so as part of this, um, one of the things that also comes up in the sales, I think it's the last question on sales, is um, how do you think about when you sell OTC, right? So there's the restrictive uh, selling agreements. Then there's some sort of discounting at times, sometimes not. Talk just about generally not. Ge- okay, generally not. Uh, when there is, is it? Hey, if you lock this up, there's a discount, or kind of how do you think about it from a framework standpoint first? I mean, look. So first of all, generally there is not. Okay. To the extent there is, it's hey, we're doing a bigger, broader deal in some construct, and we're thinking a lot of different. You know, how do you create value on both sides and a lot of different pieces? And this is likely. Uh, would it be fair to say the discounted? OTC sales are not with the crypto speculators. They're more with customers and partners. Correct. Okay. And what would yeah, a, for sure correct a bigger right. a bigger deal would be? And this is me just completely speculating, making this up. But I think generally, if I'm sitting in your seat, it's something like, "Hey, you're going to be a customer of our software product. We're going to also give you some uh, XRP for liquidity purposes or whatever. You can basically buy it at some discount, and then you can hold on your balance sheet, etc. Or, or we'll loan it to you, and you know, at, at a very low interest rate, or you know, I mean, it, there's different mechanisms, right? Okay, I mean, we're trying to be thoughtful and creative about how we catalyze the whole marketplace. Mm-hmm. And you know, look, there are other, the good news for us is there's other companies in the XRP world who are doing similar things. They're just not as big as we are. They don't own as much XRP, but there's a lot of other cool stuff going on. And uh, I guess that's good for everybody. Yeah. And, and by the way, I don't think that doing that is wrong. Right, I mean, look, every, there's people who, I, shit, I sell things and I discount them. <laughs> so like, I, I, I understand. Um, what do you think the average discount is? Oh, I don't know, I mean. Like 50%? Oh, no, or, no, no, I would say like five. Ten, I, I, I mean, like, I don't know. Smaller and, numbers. Yeah, right. I mean, look, I, I think about XRP as a currency. Mm-hmm. I, I should, I mean, would you sell a dollar that was gonna be one of my questions is well that was gonna be one of my questions is do you think it's a currency or do you look at it more of like a utility token how do you think about it i, I mean i you know part of the question there's like i don't know what exactly is a utility token what is it? I, I mean there's some parts you're starting of, to sound like me <laughs> i i don't even know look what i do know maybe for better or for worse in 2015 we had a fincen settlement with the government okay the u.s government called xrp a currency okay I think of it as a currency for purposes of deals like what you're describing. I think of it as a currency. And so if I were thinking about a, a deal construct and back to the whole reason we're talking about this is that di- the discount point, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give dollars away for fifth, for half dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, would I give someone a advantageous deal denominated in dollars for some reason? Sure. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, okay. So let's go to XRP army. Uh, in terms of uh, all of the uh, engagement on Twitter, yeah, you're not the XRP Army commander. Uh, what do you? What has your reaction been to this? What is kind of your um, perspective on kind of how how enthusiastic people are online? 
Look, I, I love the fact that there's a group of people who uh, believe in what we're doing, are advocating. And it, if anything, it, I actually think the XRP army is a reaction to the aggressiveness of the FUD. Interesting. Elaborate on this. Well, I think people are there sometimes more than other times. People are putting out information that is factually incorrect, either about Ripple mm -hmm. or about the XRP ledger or about the people around the ecosystem or about other companies in the ecosystem. And, uh, you know, that, that, that community has been catalyzed to correct that. I, and in that context, I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, are they a more vibrant group than others? I don't know. I mean, look, I get attacked by plenty who are outside of that army, and those are pretty active people, too. I think the whole space is super engaged, right? And then there's. And in some ways, that's a beautiful, healthy thing. Yeah. But look, can we all start with the same basis of facts? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I think some people just stop listening in a way that I find to be, you know, frustrating. And mm -hmm. I, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. uh, we shall still learn. There's things that I don't fully understand about what's going on in the Bitcoin world. There's things I, I learned in this conference in Montreal I found super interesting. Uh, but there's a lot of mis misunderstandings about what Ripple is, about what the XRP ledger is, uh, how it works. And, you know, I look, as I said, I'm, I'm here today to try to correct the record on some of those things. For sure. I only got a couple more questions that we got to wrap up. But, Sounds good. Um, in terms of uh, payment to employees, one of the things I find fascinating is there's plenty of companies that are built around Bitcoin. Employees accept Bitcoin as their salary. Uh, Binance, BNB. Right. Are there folks at Ripple slash XRP that are working uh, on this and getting paid in XRP? Uh, well, the only thing you said Ripple slash XRP. There's employees at Ripple who choose to get paid in XRP. Yes. Okay, got it. Uh, uh, I don't think anybody gets paid 100 percent in XRP, but it's a you know it's a kind of an opt in, and we may limit the amount they percentage they can take in XRP. I'm not sure. Got it. Um, all right. So last topic I want to cover. Uh, I call this like the elephant in the room, and it's more uh, from my standpoint. One of the things that we did not do as investors is uh, we did not participate in um, the whole ICO stuff, right? And for us, it was more around, um, I'll call it regulatory uncertainty, right? And for us, it was we had so many opportunities on the equity side uh, where we could go invest that it was just like, eh, we don't really have an advantage there, so right. we'll leave it for other people. What's your perspective on tokens, regulation? There's been a bunch of settlements recently that have been announced kind of at the end of the, the fiscal year for the SEC, et cetera, with EOS and Block One and all that. Kind of just broad-based first, just like how do you view this whole environment given that you've actually been working on this for, you know, what, four or five years now? You, you've kind of seen some evolutions there. Yeah. What's your perspective? Like, I think if you go back and look at my Twitter feed, you will find that I was one of the first people to come out and say, I think this whole ICO thing's going to end badly. Really? I think if you go back and look, I was I was very early in saying danger, danger. If you uh, said that, kudos to you. <laughs> I, I was on a panel, and I remember this well. It was an MIT panel, and I tell you, there was like 800 people showed up for this thing in San Francisco. It was a massive audience, and it was right at the height of the ICO market. And okay. <laughs> I remember there was a lawyer sitting next to me who was kind of advocating, yeah, I do an ICO. And I, all I said was, if you're going to do an ICO, just remember to hold back a lot of that money to pay him as a lawyer to defend you when the SEC comes after you. Now, one of the things I'll just point out is an interesting irony about this whole thing is we at Ripple and even I think the XRP community kind of leaned out during that craze and ETH community leaned in to really enable the, that, the, the ICO craze. Mm -hmm. Isn't it ironic that by doing that, ETH was then deemed not to be a security given its distribution and the SEC hasn't said anything about XRP? We decided that, hey, look, we think that actually clearly... You know, Ripple didn't do an ICO. The XRP ledger predated Ripple. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. How did, was there a quote-unquote ICO for XRP on the XRP ledger? No. no. The, the early days of XRP ledger were giveaways. Ripple, the company, raised money through venture capital and did a series C financing, a series A financing, a series B financing. Got it. What have you? And and um, so I got to ask XRP. There's plenty of people who think it's security. Plenty of people who don't. I think there's plenty of people who don't. Okay. I, I mean, look, there's a I don't know exactly the name of it. This ranking system that came out this week. I saw that, the crypto yeah. rating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you read my notes before this? So one of my questions this is literally going to be. If you look at those rankings compared to others, you guys actually score pretty well, right? And then um, I think that the big question, and, and I'm very sensitive to the fact that uh, I don't want you to say anything that you're uncomfortable saying, but at the same time, um, how do you think about if you're sitting in the regulator seat deciding what's a security, what's not, this yeah. stuff's new, you spoke about ETH transitioning possibly from could have been a security to now it's not, just Talk a little bit about that, you know, sitting running, what, what do you guys have, the like, third or fourth largest cap uh, asset now? It depends what you count market cap, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I think the SEC has a really hard job, and I, I genuinely mean I agree that. With that. Like, uh, this is a new thing, you know, what does it mean? You know, how should it be regulated? And so I'm respectful of the fact that it's, some of the stuff, it's not black and white. Uh, I think that, you know, how that plays out is, I think, yet to be determined. I think the slowly but surely, the SEC is providing more guidance. Uh, both through how what they're doing with an enforcement mechanism and what they're doing, you know, kind of what they're publishing on policy stuff. Uh, you know, we work with regulators around the world. You know, some regulators have been much uh, kind of quicker than the U.S. has about being specific. You know, the U.K. has come out and said that they view XRP in the same thing as ETH and BTC. Uh, we've seen a bunch of other, you know, the J- Japan that has been true. Uh, so. You know, I, I can't certainly speak on behalf of the SEC. Suffice to say, I think they've got a hard job, and I understand that you know they're kind of trying to do their best to work through it. Before we wrap up, I always ask two questions. Oh, you, you get to ask me one question to end it, but my two questions, uh, most important book you've ever read? At, uh, we just went from debating the intricacies of, of securities law to now favorite book. <laughs> Snow Crash. Snow Crash. Oh, they, old we, school. So uh, there's three books that are given to uh, product managers when they join Facebook, and Snow Crash is one of them. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I actually forget the other I two. I was given Snow, Snow Crash, Crash in somewhere around 95, 96, and I uh, thought it was pretty fascinating. Yeah. It, 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 uh, for those that read it, I think a lot of people receive it and never read it, but those yeah. who read it is pretty good. Uh, aliens, believer or non-believer? For sure. Why? There's too many things out there. It's, it's a law of large numbers. If they uh, showed up to the uh, U.S., would that be a good, or I'm sorry, to the Earth, would that be a good or bad thing? Oh, we we have aliens here already for sure. Have you, you been outside New York think? City? <laughs> Jesus. Okay, I'm kidding right. about that. So Brad, Brad actually went to Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my one question for you is, do you think differently about Ripple and the XRP ledger now as compared to 60, 70, 80 minutes? I don't know how long we've been here. So I will, uh, I'm going to expertly dodge that only because uh I think most people actually don't know what I thought before you walked in here. Oh, that's fair. Well, right? I just asked if you thought differently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think I'm actually on the podcast on record saying that it's important to separate out software company from XRP. I actually think that having software that makes banks run better, there's big businesses to be built there, right? We've actually invested in a bunch of businesses that are either trying to disrupt software products that are currently in banks or are helping banks be more efficient. That all makes a lot of sense to me. XRP, my only big thing that I just can't get over, right? And, and I understand the academic, or I understand the argument as to why, 
is if you can use XRP, right, across the rails, why not use Bitcoin? Now, I think your argument would be volatility, the the fact that you can't stop it, all the things. It's a lot faster and a lot cheaper to use XRP. So what I end up coming to is uh, there are two, there's probably many versions of the future, but two of those versions are uh, what I will call a corporate company creating a software product that is then sold in an enterprise model into banks, which you guys are doing. And there is likely to be something other than Bitcoin that's used. So whether that's XRP or somebody else comes along and creates something or it's Libra or you know whatever whatever it gets created. Wait, the white paper? <laughs> we, I, you notice I didn't even go yeah, there until the there. end. I messed yeah. up. <laughs> We're not going there. All right. And then the other uh, world is a world of um, Bitcoin, which, uh, yeah, there will be people who build this stuff, but it's much more kind of empowering people. It's fighting back against uh, things like inflation, the banking system, yada, yada, yada. I really do think that what ends up being the most valuable is which path the world goes down, right? That's fair. Like, I, I don't think that it is a, uh, if we go down the path where uh, we need something that is fully decentralized, non-sensible, non-seizable, et cetera, like, I don't think that Ripple and XRP end up being the winner, right, in, the, in that world. Vice versa. If we go down a world where uh, we need a corporate software company that sells into banks, et cetera, like, I actually don't think that Bitcoin can win in that world. There's an expression that I use sometimes at work, much to the frustration of Ripple employees. It's the, the tyranny oh the, the tyranny of the or versus the power of the and. Explain. Why is it one or the other of those? Oh, I'm, I, 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 there's kind of, and I know we're wrapping up, but you know, I, I think one of the mistakes that people make in this kind of broader crypto world mm-hmm. is that there's not going to be one winner here. There's going to be a That's bunch fair. of interesting winners. And uh, by the way, I, you know, I, I would even yield the point, is the XRP environment clearly going to be a winner? You know, I think there's some interesting dynamics there that make it more efficient in a whole bunch of ways. But I think at the end of the day, it comes back to like, is it sol- are these technologies being used to solve a real problem for real customers in a scaled way? And uh, there's a lot of, a long way to go in all of them. One sentence answer at the end of this, whenever you go do whatever you go do next, it could be 30 years from now. What is the legacy that you want Ripple, XRP, and Bitcoin to leave on the world? I, I hope that these technologies put a little dent in the universe in terms of making commerce more efficient. I think that's completely fair. All right, listen, you get a lot of credit for uh, for coming and doing this uh, completely blind, so I appreciate it very much. And uh, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> uh, at B. Garlinghouse, Twitter, at B. Garlinghouse. <laughs> the XRP Army, the lovers, the detractors have added. All right, guys, thanks so much. Thanks, Pomp. Hey, everyone, Pomp here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.